Hello, and welcome to another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. My name is Andrew Matišák, and I work as a deputy head of foreign desk in Slovak Devi Pravda, which, by the way, means truth, and it's not Russian Pravda. Ben Hodges is a former commanding general, United States Army Europe. He believes Ukraine can win the war Russia started on February 24th. Why does he believe this? How should the West help Ukraine? Should it send troops? I would say right now we have the best strategic advantage over Russia we have had in the last 70 years, General Hodges told me. What does he mean by this? And why does he think that the West should communicate to Russia that it will support Ukraine forever? And we also talk about the NATO summit that is taking place this week in Madrid. Listen to our conversation. If you enjoy what I do, please support me on coffee. Thank you. For the link, see also a description of this episode. And now, up to the new debate. I think July is going to be quite hard for Russia. This is how we reacted on Twitter to the news that US supplied Heimars had arrived in Ukraine and that we also should add German, French or Polish Hovitzers and British MLRS to this. Could you elaborate a bit on this? Why do those systems mean that July might be hot for Russians on the battlefield? The only thing that Russia has right now, the only thing that they have that works is their artillery and rockets. And they seem to have almost endless amounts of ammunition, conventional ammunition. And so uh, without that, they would be making no progress. They would be getting pushed out of Ukraine already. So. The key for Ukraine is to be able to destroy or disrupt the Russian artillery and rockets. That's why the arrival of all of these capabilities from the West are, are so important. Now, even though the Ukrainians have demonstrated amazing adaptability, I mean, and also they're very, very quick learners, tech savvy, it still takes time to train on the individual systems. And it also takes time at the levels of command to understand how to employ them to get the best effect. So taking a Polish howitzer or a German howitzer or a French Caesar is not just a one-for-one replacement of the Ukrainian system. It's a, it's a whole different capability. And so uh, learning how to employ that to the best effect is part of the process. And, and I think also the, the maintenance and the ammunition systems required for those howitzers. It takes a little bit of time to, to get that in place. In other words, the equipment is arriving, but it doesn't, you don't take it off the shelf and immediately start using it. Okay. I, that's why I think by July, we're going to start, the Russians are going to start feeling the effect of all of this increased capability. Uh, and that's why I remain very optimistic. Of course, we should have started months ago. We didn't. So here we are, but I think uh, the Russians are going to start feeling the effect of all of this here in, in the country. They're already starting to see it. We see reports already, but when you start getting the numbers, it's, it's going to make a big difference, I believe. And according to CNN, 
The U.S. will also announce the delivery of medium to long-range surface-to-air missile defense, additional artillery ammunition, and counter-battery radars for Ukraine. How much does Ukraine need weapons like medium to long-range surface-to-air missile defense? And in general, what kind of weapons and in what quantity does Ukraine need, taking into account the current character of the war? I would leave it to the Ukrainians to talk about the quantities that are needed. I do know this, that um, publicly, we are not going to know officially what's been requested. And we shouldn't know. I mean, this is classified information between the government of Ukraine and the US, the UK, Germany, Poland, etc. I am very confident that the Pentagon knows exactly what Ukraine needs and what they've asked for. And I'm very confident that we are providing capabilities to meet those needs, not as fast as we want. But it's interesting. It's like when we say, well, we can't do this because it might provoke. Then about two or three weeks later, we change our mind. And so we kind of keep going up the stairs. As long as we keep moving in that direction, I I think this is a good thing. Now, it's important to provide this surface-to-air missile defense capabilities so that Ukraine has the ability to stop these missiles that are slamming into apartment buildings. So this is about protecting innocent civilians. I I think this is an important capability that Ukraine needs. But I I think also just just as important is the universal condemnation of Russia by the West. I mean, the the leaders that are meeting in Elmau, Germany today for the G7, uh, the leaders that will meet in uh, Madrid later this week, uh, and every other venue needs to be universal condemnation that Russia is deliberately targeting civilian population. That that missile that hit the apartment building yesterday, that, that was not an accident. I mean, they've been doing this for four months. And so the ridiculous statements such as we should not humiliate Putin or, you know, uh, we should we should negotiate with them. I think you're going to see less and less of those kind of statements. Do you think that we, I mean, especially the U.S., will deliver to Ukraine weapons systems that will have Ukrainians to hit targets within Russian territory? Yes, because, I mean, from a logic standpoint, it makes no sense that Russia can launch missiles over 300 kilometers from inside Russia and hit Ukrainian cities and kill innocent Ukrainian people. But somehow we're not going to help Ukraine prevent that. And look, I understand, of course, the administration and the other governments want to prevent escalation. But what we have seen now for four months is that nothing that we do causes escalation. Remember, three months ago, we were arguing whether or not to provide Stinger because, you know, concern that a Russian helicopter being shot down by an American made Stinger might somehow provoke the Russians. I mean, how ridiculous does that seem now? So I, I think that uh, we, we are on the path, hopefully, towards uh, uh, providing more capability so that Ukraine can hit the logistics hubs, the transportation hubs, the command and control hubs, the airfields from which Russian aircraft are launching missiles. These have to be hit as well. And of course, Russia will complain about it. You know, they, they complain about Georgia and uh, Moldova and Ukraine being offered EU membership. They complain about Sweden and Finland being offered NATO membership. They can't do anything about it. The only thing they have left is nuclear weapons. 
and there and there's no way they're going to use a nuclear weapon for any of these reasons because then it would be impossible for the U.S. and the U.K. to stay out of it physically. But looking at the arsenal, Western countries still have at disposal. Are our efforts sustainable? That's a good question. Um, we have a real problem with our own ammunition stocks. For the last 20 years in Iraq and Afghanistan, we did not need that much artillery and rockets. We just didn't use it. I mean, I think the, the last four months, the Russians have shot more artillery than we did in the last 20 years. And so it will, it will take some time to replenish what we need. And also it's going to take political decisions in all of our countries, including here in Germany, where I live in Frankfurt, a decision to invest in ammunition that you hope you'll never use, but that's a part of deterrence. I mean, it doesn't matter how many tanks or howitzers you have if you don't have ammunition. And so we have been reminded by this uh, war in Ukraine about the logistics that are required for effective deterrence and defense and modern warfare. This is very expensive. I know it might be a sensitive political decision, but should we perhaps focus more on defense industries, basically to put emphasis on war efforts? Yeah, I, I know that in the U.S., and I suspect in other countries as well, the Pentagon is already communicating with industry to talk about how do we increase production, what's required. Of course, this will be expensive, but I think that there's a recognition that this is, is important. What's happening in Ukraine affects us. This is not something over the horizon that's somebody else's problem. This is our problem. This is Russia attacking democracy. This is Russia seeking to reestablish or change the order that has served everybody so well for so long. Uh, we have strategic interests in the Black Sea. Uh, we have allies that are at huge risk. And so we have to make sure that Ukraine wins here because also the Chinese are watching, the North Koreans are watching, the Iranians are watching, Pakistan is watching. If we cannot stop Russia here, I think that uh, we have real problems down the road. And they see that we are so concerned about Russia maybe using a nuclear weapon that those countries that have nuclear weapons will, will take lessons from that. And so this, this is more than just Ukraine. The Russian military will soon exhaust its combat capabilities and will be forced to bring its offensive in Ukraine's Donbass to a halt. That is what the Washington Post wrote quoting intelligence sources. I have to admit that it sounds a bit too optimistic to me, as losses on the Ukrainian side are also heavy. But how do you see it? Let's look at the facts. After four months, with all the advantages and all the capabilities that Russia had, they still have not finished capturing Donetsk and Luhansk. Certainly, they continue to make progress by this massive use of artillery, but the Russian Navy, not a factor, uh, not, not a significant factor. The Russian Air Force does not dare fly into Ukrainian airspace. They launch missiles from inside Belarus and inside Russia. Russia has serious, very serious manpower problems. You know, the articles are out there now about how they put people into the fight with almost no training. And they, they do not want to do a general mobilization because then it would give lie to the whole uh, reason that they went there and that they're failing. And uh, that would, that's a huge political risk for the Kremlin. So uh, they're, they are in trouble. I believe that Russians trust systems. They don't trust people. And so when their system fails, they have a hard time making the necessary 
adjustments and adaptations. I think they're still searching around for who the commander is going to be. They're paying the price for the decades of corruption inside their system. I keep seeing every week reports of people, of parents, of sailors and soldiers that were killed. And they're asking like, what, what's going on here? I think if we see it in the West, then that's only the tip of the iceberg. And so we should be doing everything we can to accelerate that collapse, not just giving weapons and ammunition to Ukraine, but making it clear that we're going to do this forever. There's no like, oh, we might stop in July. Okay. Because the Russians, they, they actually, I think the Kremlin believes they can still win because they assume that we're going to lose interest. And so that's why they're willing to continue feeding uh, cannon fodder into the, into the fight. So we've got to, from an information standpoint, as well as a military standpoint, do all that we can. And, and also, in parallel, invest in education and training for Ukrainian officers, soldiers, help Ukraine build up the institutions that they need. Ukraine does not have a manpower problem. Every Ukrainian man under the age of 65 has to be inside Ukraine. That's millions of people. They do have a problem. They don't have enough trained people yet. So that, that takes time. You can't just do what the Russians do and expect to get a good effect. Should we expand the training program for Ukrainian soldiers? Yeah. If we make the commitment Ukraine is going to win, then we're going to do everything that's required to help them win. Talking about Ukraine winning the war, you said the West basically goes up to the stairs and it provides more and more capabilities to Ukraine. What is on top of the stairs? Sending soldiers to Ukraine? I can see a scenario where we help with advisors, but I think a better, a better step would be to find commercial logistics companies, for example, that do this. You know, we, we were depended on commercial logistics companies for 20 years in Iraq and Afghanistan. So um, if we don't want to have boots on the ground, great, then get one of these big commercial companies that has forklifts and transport and expertise on large logistics. Let them come in and help. That's, that's one thing. But the more important thing, the, the decision on whether or not to put troops in there has got to be driven by strategic design. What is the strategy? That's the first and, and most important thing is what is the strategy? You know, commitment to win then you can start making policy decisions. But we, we tend to get the policy decision first without having the strategy. So before we talk about troops uh, or uniforms, we need to have, make sure we have a strategy for what the, we want the outcome to be. Uh, yeah, it's interesting you mentioned commercial companies, but I have to say that I hope we are not sending another Blackwater to Ukraine. No, no, Just... no. I'm, <laughs> talking about, I'm not talking about contract fighters. I'm talking about logistics. Ben, we have a NATO summit this week in Madrid, and at a Brussels summit in June 2021, NATO leaders agreed to begin work on a new strategic concept. But while NATO-Russia relations have been a big topic even before the Ukraine war, I think we can say that February 24th changed the world. How do you assess the alliance reaction to this so far? And how grave is the threat of Russia to NATO in the medium-longer term? I would say that right now, we have best strategic advantage over Russia that we've had in the last 70 years. I mean, think about it. 85% of Russia's land power is in Ukraine or committed to the fight in Ukraine. 85%. So that means they've had to take troops from everywhere else, and they still have not been successful against Ukraine. Their stocks are being depleted. They're down below 50% of precision munitions. They've lost hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other of uh, frontline equipment 
their manpower system was in terrible shape and uh, they've been exposed. At the same time, NATO, you've got almost every country now uh, increased spending, including here in Germany. You've got Sweden and Finland eventually joining NATO. I mean, that, that alone is a gigantic increase in our advantage. You've got more NATO troops, more U.S. troops on NATO's eastern front. We're making improvements on so many of the things that needed to be improved. And the alliance is totally committed to improving overall readiness. I think it's important to be concerned that what Russia might do, that we have to be have our eyes open. But in terms of real capability, the last thing the Russians want right now, because they see how they understand how vulnerable they are and how weak they are. The last thing they want is a conflict with NATO. I think we are in a good position, but it's, it's not free, it's not cheap, uh, and it's not automatic. But the Baltic countries are complaining that there was never a realistic plan by NATO to defend them. Should we have one? So I, I would disagree that there was never a plan, but I would agree there's not enough capability. So I think one of the things that will come out of the NATO summit, or it should, is an increase in uh, air and missile defense, an increase in the uh, capabilities to enable the sectors, air responsibility, meaning mobility, um, the logistics, the fuel, and so on, ammunition stocks. And I predict we're going to see an increase in the number of troops from Estonia all the way down to uh, Bulgaria. Certainly the United States is going to have more have uh, capability Uh, around Romania and Poland. Germany has talked about increasing. UK has talked about increasing. I think the uh, the Baltic countries, our Baltic allies, are 100% correct that we need to have more forward defense capability because uh, we see what happens when the Russians, wherever they do make gains, we see what happens in those villages and towns. What happens? And, and so... Uh, the Estonians are not interested, nor should they be, in how fast we can reinforce, because by the time reinforcements get there, it'll be too late for big parts of the country. Now, they're not defenseless. You've got enhanced forward presence battle groups, which are integrated into host nation brigades. You've got Baltic air policing, and you've got increased capabilities. But we definitely need more air and missile defense, for sure. We've seen that the Russians will, will strike civilian targets intentionally. That means that our air and missile defense has got to be more than just protecting critical infrastructure. It's got to protect civilian populations also. That's a huge increase in the requirement. Except for Russia, what do you consider as the main challenges for NATO? Yeah, the, the main challenge is to keep everybody focused on the, the primary purpose for NATO, which is uh, deterrence and defense. I mean, that's These other things that we're going to hear about, these are all important, okay? I mean, climate, that does affect us. That, that's, I'm not dismissing that. But the primary purpose is deterrence and defense of all of our members. And that means you have to have trained, ready forces and processes. You, and you have to exercise. You have to spend the money. This is not about 2%. This is about readiness. And in order to do that, that means everybody's got to agree that there is a threat. I mean, that Russia is a threat. It's an adversary. China is a threat. It's an adversary. Now, our uh, political leaders will use different language, perhaps, but we cannot be mistaken 
about uh, what happens. Now, that doesn't mean you can't do things with them. I mean, for 40 years of the Cold War, you know, we still played uh, basketball against the Russians, the Soviets in hockey, and, and uh, there was trade, but they were definitely our adversary of the Cold War. And if you have, if we have our eyes open and are realistic about this, then you end up making the right choices. And one last thing. So it's a broad topic. We have seen a relatively quick conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh, and now we witness the protracted attrition-centric war in Ukraine. What does it tell us about the future warfare? You have to be prepared for the full range of conflict. I mean, you have to compete in the information space. You have to continue to look for uh, capabilities that allow you to reach further with precision to destroy the enemy's ability to conduct warfare. Um, you have to protect your systems against cyber, but you also have to have endless amounts of artillery ammunition, and you have to have endless amounts of uh, young women and men who are fit, who are prepared to fight. So you need the whole thing. Uh, don't learn the wrong lessons about tanks. I'm not a tanker, but I love tanks. The, the ones that are being destroyed are the ones that are exposed. They're not protected by infantry. They're, they're just sitting out in the open. Of course, they're going to be destroyed. That doesn't mean we don't need tanks. Uh, a ship is sunk by any ship missile. That doesn't mean it's the end of ships. That means you have to have better protection for the ships. So we need to make sure we learn the right lessons from all of this. Uh, at the end of the day, the nature of war does not change. It's still about violence. It's still about uncertainty. And it's still about uh, trying to uh, exert your will against the other side. This was another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. Subscribe. Listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and all the other platforms. If you enjoy what I do, please support me on Coffee. For the link, see also a description of this episode. Thank you for listening and stay tuned.